For six generations, the Jones family has been providing high-quality meats. And now, we're providing treats for the best member of your family, man's best friend, aka the goodest boys and girls. Jones Natural Shoes makes bones and treats that are sure to be savored by your dog and are made from the best natural ingredients available. Our flavorful chews are made from natural animal parts and will have your puppy drooling with happiness. From treats like sticks and chews to savory bones and patties, we've got you covered for finding the perfect reward for that special pup in your life. Jones Natural Chews come in all sizes, so make sure to choose the right treat for your pup. And remember, it's important to be supervising your pup when they're enjoying their treats to keep your puppy safe. Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Or visit jonesnaturalchews.com to get started with our store locator tool. That's Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Eagle Federal Credit Union. People are quick to sell you a deal. How about saving on things you already buy? All you need is your phone and the U.S. Eagle Perks app. It comes with U.S. Eagle Perks checking. Save an average of $1,700 a year on thousands of local discounts. Checking that does more, saves more, because people mean more at U.S. Eagle. Terms and conditions apply. Savings research and app powered by Bazang. Individual savings may vary. See U.S. Eagle for details. Federally insured by NCUA. Cooking the Books is a podcast about food and literature, the inspiration behind the stories, and how these recipes come to life in my kitchen. Come for the books, stay for the food. Cause of Death is a proud member of the Borellas Podcasters Guild. Cause of Death portrays imagery of death, war, and destruction. It may not be suitable for children under the age of 13. Welcome to Cause of Death. I'm your host, Jackie Moranti. Part 6 takes us through the worldwide efforts to eradicate smallpox, the creation of the World Health Organization, and the overconfidence of nations. Of course, the anti-vaxxers rear their ugly heads, too. In September of 1906, anti-vax protesters were marching all over Pennsylvania. They were demanding that the mandates for vaccination be overturned. By the end of 1906, the school board of Altoona, Pennsylvania, gave permission to their school faculties to violate the vaccination law. The board told them that they would have full protection from the board of directors. The looming question was, 
But what will taxpayers say about spending their money to defend persons guilty of violating a state law? The county commissioner sent his people around to schools to ensure that the law was not being violated. In February of 1907, Edward Goulden, who was one of the protest leaders engaged in this mess, died of smallpox. His successor, Porter F. Cope, continued to push for a reversal of the vaccination mandates. The governor gave a resounding nope. The vaccination mandates held up. Now, are you banging your head on your desk yet? Because I was when I read this story. In 1905, the Commissioner of Health of the state of Pennsylvania wrote a report which stated, quote, at the lowest estimate, it costs the state $350 for each person outside of the city's quarantine to prevent the spread of smallpox. This means that during 1905, more than $2 million of state money was expended or, as well put by Dr. Dixon, was wasted to simply gratify a whim of those who opposed vaccination, end quote. The commissioner deems smallpox a, quote, luxury and not a necessity, end quote. In 1910, Saginaw, Michigan, suffered a severe outbreak of smallpox. 48 people died, and $75,000 was spent in quarantine, fumigation, and burial. This does not include the effect that smallpox had on commerce. Let me bring us back to the present for a minute. Commerce will suffer during periods of pandemic or outbreak simply because people are too sick to work. Morbidity places more people on disability benefits since they'll never truly recover and are unfit to work. If people can't work, there are less people to do the jobs that are available, and productivity fails. When productivity fails, there are less goods available, and prices rise. Supply and demand. People are in short supply, but the demand does not stop. So going back to the Saginaw story, on the flip side of that, Grand Rapids spent $2,693 for a vaccination campaign, and there were no cases of smallpox in the city. At this point, Germany had upheld its vaccination mandate for 30 years, as had several European countries. China had made it mandatory that travelers to that country have vaccination records available to enter the country. During the late 1910s and early 1920s, Source tracking began. A child in Pennsylvania showed up to school with smallpox. The school was forced to close down until all of the children in attendance could be vaccinated. The disease was traced back to the child's sister who worked at a factory. The factory was forced to shut down until all the employees could be vaccinated along with their families. A few of the other factory workers were found to have the disease, and all of their family members were vaccinated, along with all of their co-workers. It went back until almost everyone in the state had been vaccinated. In 1913, the Secretary of War under Woodrow Wilson ordered a general vaccination of all of the employees working for the health department. 
This included medical inspectors, food and sanitary inspectors, clerks, members of the disinfecting service, heads of the departments, and the press who had been following all these people around. The United States was sneaking its way into mandatory vaccination. As the U.S. became involved in World War I, mandatory vaccinations into the military were required again. And this was the first war in history where the soldiers would not die of smallpox in droves. Worldwide, from the 1910s to the 1930s, vaccination rates fell. Even in countries where vaccination was mandatory, the laws weren't being stringently enforced. Countries that had previously enjoyed life without smallpox were now experiencing devastating losses of life. During the 1920s, several court cases were argued by citizens of the U.S. that compulsory vaccination was a violation of their constitutional rights. And more and more, the courts were favoring vaccination on the grounds that the good of the many outweighed the good of the few. The Office Internationale de Hygiene Publique was created in 1909. This was an international organization that promoted health care around the world. The organization met every two years and performed the preparatory work for the International Sanitary Conference of 1911 and 1912. They were also involved in the Convention of 1926. This convention was the first worldwide conference that addressed the smallpox pandemic. The president of the permanent committee of the OIHP, Professor Rocco Santaquilo, was of the mind that the foremost guarantee of international security from disease lay in the standard of the public health of each country. Quarantine was outmoded, and vaccination must be necessary worldwide to prevent the disease from spreading. After World War I, President Woodrow Wilson became a staunch supporter of the League of Nations. His vision for the organization was to, quote, endeavor to take steps in matters of international concern for the preservation and control of disease, end quote. The United States refused to join the League because, or maybe in spite of this, the health organization arm of the League chose to establish itself in Geneva, Switzerland. During this time, national and international travel was limited due to the spread of smallpox making it harder for international efforts to take hold. The United States became the leader in cases reported in the early 1920s. 1921 saw 108,135 cases reported with 764 deaths. 1922 saw 27,822 cases. 1923 saw 26,731 cases. The states that had made vaccination mandatory, of course, reported the lowest numbers. And the rest of the world looked to the U.S. in horror. In other parts of the world, vaccine matter was in high demand, and there wasn't enough to go around. France was experiencing a different problem. It seems that the society ladies couldn't be vaccinated in the arm or a scar would show. This was solved by wearing scarlet ribbons over their vaccine scars so that they could also show their vaccination status. 
Calvin Coolidge took office in 1923, and this would have been the perfect time to step up and set the example for the rest of the nation. But the adage about the U.S. remained. It takes six years to get an idea through Congress, but it's a sad truth that it sometimes takes generations to get an idea through the public consciousness. Coolidge's physician refused to acknowledge that the president had been vaccinated, and Coolidge never said anything about it either. And smallpox continued to spread. By the 1930s, four states had laws that prohibited mandatory vaccination. 28 didn't care and had no laws either way. Six had laws that left vaccination up to the individual, and and 10 had mandatory vaccination laws. The health organization of the League of Nations received financial support from the Rockefeller Foundation, but it did not receive any funding from the U.S., nor did it receive any cooperation. On August 22, 1928, the Smallpox Vaccination Commission of the League began discussing cases of sleeping sickness that were occurring in the Netherlands and England after vaccination. Sleeping sickness was attributed to encephalitis, or inflammation of the brain. The concern was such that the Netherlands suspended their mandatory vaccination laws for a year. However, by August 27th, the Smallpox Vaccination Commission voted that the risk of smallpox was higher than the risk of encephalitis, and vaccination efforts should remain mandatory. It was later determined that the encephalitis had likely stemmed from the use of differing vaccinia strains that were in use as a vaccine. At that point, there was no control mechanism in place for laboratories, so strains of the virus were wide-ranging, and production, maintenance, and efficiency and safety of the end product were arbitrary. In 1967, all of that changed, and international recommendations were put in place that specified which strains should be used. 1931 and 1932 were testaments to vaccination success in several countries. Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Denmark, Switzerland, Ireland, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Scotland, and Yugoslavia had reported no cases of smallpox. All had enforced mandatory vaccination. This episode of Cause of Death has been brought to you by Southwest Labs. I don't know about any of you, but my primary care physician hasn't seen patients in months. If I have something going on, it's either head to the ER or hope I can get into urgent care. Well, there's a new option in town. Southwest Labs offers a huge variety of testing, including prostate screening, diabetes monitoring, COVID-19 testing, and so much more. Simply choose your test, get tested, and a doctor will give you the interpretation virtually. They have convenient locations in Albuquerque and Las Cruces. Simply call 505-609-LABS, visit their website at southwestlab.com, or find them on the socials at Southwest Lab for more information. Mention this ad when you contact them. Don't wait to figure out whether your doctor can see you or not. Schedule an appointment with Southwest Labs today. They'll give you answers and peace of mind. The United States and Canada remained at the top of the list of countries with the highest rates of infection. 
1931, Professor William Tullock and Dr. James Craigie announced the discovery of a new smallpox serum propagated from patients with smallpox. This was described as a flocculation reaction. Flocculation is a reaction between the antigen and antibody in vivo. So the disease came together with the person's antibodies in a test tube, and the flock can be seen with the naked eye. This flock was then propagated in embryonated eggs in hopes that it would extend the preservation of the vaccine. This method was also thought to give immediate protection to people who came in contact with the disease. This process would later be called a live attenuated vaccine. Hugh S. Cumming, the United States Surgeon General, reported that this method of vaccination would not only be cheaper and simpler, but it would also quell some of the anti-vaxxers who rejected the idea of vaccine coming from the pus of a cow. In 1933, the American Public Health Association reported that a new vaccine had been discovered at the Rockefeller Institute in New York. Dr. Rivers explained it as, quote, it was made by giving smallpox to a laboratory test tube instead of a calf, end quote. The major difference would be that the vaccine would be guaranteed free of contamination. This new serum could be injected hypodermically underneath the skin. There would be no soreness and no scars. 4,000 people were inoculated this way, and all were immune to smallpox. This was another live attenuated vaccine. By 1935, most Americans thought that smallpox had been eradicated. They couldn't be more wrong. The Great Depression created new outbreaks due to homelessness. Most of the farmers who had lost their land moved west to pick fruit and cotton in the fields, and outbreaks of smallpox were again common in California. World War II opened a whole nother can of worms. The International Health Organization was brought to a standstill. It wasn't until 1941 that Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt began proposing the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. That organization was created in 1943 and included 44 allied and associated nations which signed an agreement that created the United Nations Agency. This became the first international relief agency in world history. The UNRRA transitioned into the World Health Organization in 1946. After the Second World War, smallpox outbreaks continued all over the world, but they were small and easily contained. Most countries, with the exception of England and the U.S., of course, required travelers to produce vaccination records upon entering the country. As soldiers came home from the war in 1946, smallpox came with them. Several outbreaks occurred in England and the U.S. The soldiers were bringing it with them from Japan and spreading it in their homelands. Suddenly, vaccination was in high demand again. People were flocking to vaccination stations from California to New York in the States. WHO made a very serious attempt to eradicate smallpox in 1950 through its regional affiliate, the Pan American Sanitary Bureau. 
Dr. Soper, who was director of the PASB, began seeking help from the U.S. and was directed to the U.S. National Institutes of Health. They referred him to William Gebhardt at the Michigan State Health Department Laboratory. This laboratory was the fifth oldest state health agency in the U.S. It operated under a grant from the legislature established in 1921. Biologic products were produced in the lab and were provided free to the state health officers and physicians. Who began discussion on smallpox eradication at conventions in 1953, 1954, and 1955? They were determined to eliminate smallpox from nature. In 1958, at the 11th Annual World Health Assembly, it was held in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Professor Viktor Zadnov, Deputy Minister of Health for the USSR, suggested that the eradication of smallpox was theoretically possible within 10 years. He reported that vaccination and revaccination should become mandatory throughout the world beginning in 1959. And he did have a plan. It consisted of surveillance containment activities. This meant that identification, notification, isolation, quarantine, and disinfectant matters should be in place along with vaccination. Dr. Zadnoff offered 25 million doses of freeze-dried vaccine to the World Health Organization, and he offered assistance with vaccination in Burma, Cambodia, Ghana, Guinea, India, Indonesia, Iraq, and Pakistan. Cuba offered 1 million doses of glycerolated vaccine. The delegates endorsed the proposal, and the director general was called upon to study and report on the implementation of the project. He presented his report in January of 1959. This report suggested a global program of mass vaccinations. These vaccinations would be performed by a smallpox eradication service. The program carried an estimated cost of $97.7 million. The downfall was that this program did not include the People's Republic of China. They were not WHO members. Well, the thought was there. But unless you're going to vaccinate everyone, you can't eradicate anything. Smallpox ended up taking a backseat to other eradication programs that WHO was working on. Yaws, syphilis, malaria, and hookworms came first. Since it was found that malaria and hookworms were carried by vectors and so were almost impossible to eradicate, and that yaws and syphilis were cured by doses of penicillin, those eradication efforts were eventually tabled. The 12th World Health Assembly in 1959 began to envision a world where 80% of the population were vaccinated or revaccinated in affected populations. Intentions were there, but between 1959 and 1966, malaria again took precedence. The failure of WHO to eradicate malaria, hookworm, and yellow fever damaged the organization's reputation, and the financial backers of these programs, namely UNICEF, backed out. 
The Pan American Health Organization continued with their eradication efforts, and by 1960, they had reported that in North America, 4,792 cases had been reported, a significant improvement over 1950. Regional programs in Bolivia and Paraguay were successful, and smallpox was eliminated from those countries in 1960. Ecuador saw elimination in 1963. Algeria eliminated smallpox in 1961. The Central African Republic, the Congo, and Gabon eliminated smallpox in 1955, 1954, and 1956, respectively. Iraq was in 1959, Yemen in 1960, Saudi Arabia 1961, and Iran 1963. They had all eliminated smallpox. All of these countries could still experience outbreaks from people traveling into them from bordering countries, so efforts had to continue. India launched a national smallpox eradication program in conjunction with Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and WHO. In 1962, it was believed that there were 44 endemic countries, and of those, 14 were conducting an eradication program, 22 had programs that had not yet started, and 8 had done nothing. The WHO Expert Committee of Smallpox raised the vaccination-revaccination requirements to 100% of the population. Again, China was not a member of WHO, so they were not included in the vaccination program. However, they were just as eager to eradicate the disease as everyone else, so they started their own vaccination program in 1958. By 1961, China had eliminated smallpox. Who formed the Smallpox Eradication Unit in 1965? Dr. Karel Raska, who was an epidemiologist from Czechoslovakia, was elected director of the Communicable Diseases for WHO. He believed that smallpox eradication was possible, and he was also the creator of the jet injector. The jet injector made it possible to vaccinate 500 people without reloading vaccine. About 1,000 people could be vaccinated in an hour. There was no fear of contamination since the smallpox vaccine was intradermal. On April 7, 1965, World Health Day was celebrated. President Lyndon Johnson was implored by Dr. Benjamin Blood and Dr. James Watt of the U.S. Public Health Service to involve the U.S. in the eradication of smallpox. The press release from his office on November 23rd of 1965 read that he had promised to help the Pan American Health Organization's efforts through helping to protect 105 million people in 18 African countries. Encouraged by this, WHO member countries unanimously approved a 10-year program to eradicate smallpox worldwide. This effort would start in 1967 and end in 1977. In 1968, the goal was to have vaccination programs in 41 countries, including Afghanistan, Burma, India, Indonesia, Nepal, Pakistan, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and pretty much all of Africa south of the Sudan. 220 million people were to be vaccinated that year. Planes, trains, and automobiles made eradication harder, even in countries that had previously eliminated the disease. 
Since it wasn't as prevalent as it had been in the past, it was often misdiagnosed, so the patient wouldn't be quarantined and the spread would continue. Mandatory vaccinations in countries where it had been eliminated had stopped, as had the vaccine passports for travel. Doctors had to be retrained in the identification and treatment of smallpox, and for the organizations working on eradication, it was one step forward and two steps back. Vaccination would have to ramp up everywhere. America began using a disease reporting system that could transmit data over radio waves from Geneva. The data made it easier for countries to take immediate action if the disease was reported anywhere in the world. Quarantine inspectors were stationed at airports to check vaccination records. Anyone entering without a vaccination record was not allowed to enter the country. Vaccination records were only valid for three years. This was a worldwide effort, so Americans had to comply with the rules, as well as foreigners. This order was stemmed by outbreaks in several other countries. Smallpox had been imported into Aden, Ceylon, Leyden Island, Germany, Ghana, Iran, Malia, Pakistan, Nigeria, the Philippines, England, and the United Arab Republic. With WHO monitoring the airwaves and reporting to everyone in the world, literally there was a sort of smallpox witch hunt unraveling. If someone was suspected of traveling without papers, or worse, having the disease and spreading it, they were hunted and and hospitalized. After that, they were deported to their home country. The U.S. finally made vaccination mandatory countrywide in 1963. I'm just going to leave that right there. By 1965, parents were provided with a list of vaccines that were approved for children. This list included smallpox vaccine at 12 months and revaccination at 5 to 6 years. By 1970, vaccinators were going village to village in some of the remotest areas of the world. Who and the CDC were involved in the efforts? That said, smallpox was making its way back to the first world countries by people traveling the world. Germany, England, Czechoslovakia, and yes, the U.S. experienced outbreaks. It was not over yet. 1970 saw Canada ordering 17,000 vials to start a vaccine program in that country. In 1972, an outbreak in Yugoslavia almost shut down the entire European continent after it was discovered that 700,000 workers from Yugoslavia had been sent to Germany, Italy, Switzerland, France, and Sweden. All those countries ended up with small epidemics. Germany was particularly concerned because they were host to the Olympic Games that year. WHO immediately flew to Yugoslavia and began a vaccination campaign. Within days, 18 million Yugoslavs were vaccinated. On April 14th, WHO announced the last case of smallpox, and that outbreak was over. On January 1st of 1971, the U.S. Public Health Service modified its regulations. Quote, 
although the United States can require evidence of smallpox vaccinations from all persons entering the United States, this will only be enforced for those who, within the past 14 days, have been in countries reporting smallpox. Persons inquiring about immunization requirements should be informed that it is desirable and recommended that they be vaccinated prior to departure. End quote. Proof of immunization by travelers was required to get into and out of the U.S. It had to be recorded on one's passport. The information included the date one was vaccinated, the date the next vaccination was due, the brand of the vaccine, and the expiration date of the dose received. Smallpox was not going to go down easy. During the first seven months of 1972, 47,872 cases were reported to WHO, about 10,000 more than the previous year. WHO and the CDC were undaunted. Vaccination efforts continued. The disease had already been eliminated in the Western Hemisphere, and Dr. Donald A. Henderson, who oversaw the smallpox eradication program for WHO, predicted that the disease could be totally eradicated in nature in the following 18 months. An outbreak in 1972 in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal sent WHO and the CDC screaming with jet injector guns to those countries. 40,000 healthcare workers were put on duty to vaccinate anything that moved in those places. In August of 1973, the mandatory vaccination of school children for smallpox was revisited. The disease was declared dead in the Western Hemisphere. And it was a huge accomplishment for all the countries of North America. So was it still necessary to vaccinate children for smallpox? Two things drove the decision. Money was first, of course. And then there was the consideration of actual danger of anyone getting smallpox. It was decided that compulsory vaccination could be halted for everyone except those in the military and those who had direct contact with orthopox viruses in laboratories. Great Britain also discontinued vaccination in 1973. Canada discontinued in 1976. Smallpox seemed to be cornered in India and Ethiopia, where the vaccination efforts continued. By July of 1976, headlines in India read, India wipes out the feared smallpox. For the first time in history, India was free of the disease. 34 remote villages in Ethiopia remained. On May 12, 1975, WHO reported only 45 active cases. Then in 1977, reports came from Somalia. 280 cases were found there. This, on the heels of labs across the world destroying the smallpox matter used to vaccinate. Enough vaccine matter came together for one last rally, and WHO sent 3,000 healthcare workers to vaccinate the people of Somalia. The outbreak was ended in November of 1977. On Tuesday, December 13, 1977, the World Health Organization announced that smallpox had been officially eradicated in nature. The last smallpox patient was a 24-year-old cook from Merka, Somalia, on October 26, 1977. And you can still see his picture today if you look online. 
The last death from smallpox occurred in the UK in 1978. She had a small dark room that happened to be one floor down from a lab where smallpox research was taking place. The virus had traveled through the vents and into her dark room. Janet Parker died of smallpox on September 11, 1978. She was the last official victim of a disease that had plagued the human race for centuries. When the lab was inspected, it was found that it was an inadequate environment for research on virulent disease. Research was allowed to continue, but only with lower-level contagions. The last doses of smallpox would be remanded to two level four labs, one in the U.S. and one in Russia. Those labs continue to do research on smallpox today. Between the years 1900 and 1977, three million people died of smallpox. I'll be back in two weeks with a special episode that will give a down-and-dirty view of the immune system and how it works, a glossary of terms and some insight into why things were done the way they were done in the 1800s as opposed to why things are done the way they are done in 2021. After that, we'll continue with the history of another disease that killed millions but was largely ignored by the U.S., Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review in your favorite podcatcher. And always, and most importantly, don't forget to share. I'm working on getting a merch store set up so that you can actually own t-shirts, keychains, stickers, and maybe even pot holders with the COD logo on them. If you like the show, follow me at Cause of Death on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in two weeks. challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia.